Welcome to the WattPod, a journey into the world of the most exciting clean tech startups, powering the energy transition and our carbon-free future. We will learn about the journeys of these companies and their founders, their backgrounds, the hurdles they face, those they have overcome, as well as the breakthrough innovations they are delivering. We will also explore what investors and innovators are looking for as we head towards a cleaner, more distributed, more flexible energy system. What innovations and investments are required to ensure access to cheap, reliable, and responsible energy? Our guests bring a range of expertise and insights that will help us understand what developments are taking place. I look forward to our discussions with them and this journey with you. This episode is brought to you by Catalyst.Earth, accelerating net zero and beyond through blockchain technology. Sign up for your NFT at www.katalyst.earth. Funds raised go towards environmental and carbon removal projects. Peter Knowles is president of Financial Machines and an advisor to net zero markets. In these roles, he covers two important areas of decarbonization. Financial Machines is a software company delivering tools to manage risk and maximize revenue for wind, solar, and energy storage. Net zero markets are environmental pioneers creating market-based products that will make individuals and companies' climate ambitions a reality and drive investment in carbon removal projects. Peter, welcome to the WattPod. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I've been a listener to the podcast for for over the last year, so uh, find it interesting and informative. So it's great to uh, to be on as a on as a guest. Really appreciate your support. Um, I was wondering if we could just start off talking a little bit about you, your journey, how you came to be involved in in this space. Yeah, let me give you a a quick kind of overview. I, I'm a a commodities and power person by background. I, I started in the late '90s in the People can probably tell I'm from the UK, uh, although I've been living in the US for the last 20 years. So um, I started in the UK working for a, a utility uh, and modeling electricity markets. Um, yeah, I then moved on to run risk management. Uh, I then left that sleep utility and joined Enron, uh, at the time a, a pretty unknown company, even though it was the seventh largest in America at the time. Uh, I remember having to explain to people where I worked that I'd I don't have to explain that anymore about Enron, uh, but I, I migrated across to Enron and took on a more commercial role, helping clients manage risk around energy assets. Um, and after Enron went bankrupt in uh, 2001, I joined uh, Barclays and spent the last 20 years there helping build out the commodities business in um, in the UK and North America. And then for the last few years, I, I spent out of the commodity space looking at strategy, capital management, planning and I, I got back into the climate related space by looking at climate stress testing when that started a, a couple of years ago uh, about a year before uh, before I left the firm so yeah I left about a year ago um I wanted to look at ways to get re-engaged in the commodity space and with my power background uh, two spaces popped up one was energy transition uh, uh, the power component and, and migration on the electricity grid and also the voluntary carbon market, um, having looked at emissions markets back in the 2000s. Those are the two two areas I wanted to target. And I also wanted to flip my career on its head. Um, I'd worked for, you know, almost over 20 years for large global organizations. And I wanted to try something completely different, working for small growth orientated uh, entrepreneurial organizations. Really interested 
to to get your viewpoint because you've got this um interesting space where you're covering both the energy transition and um carbon markets and i've i've seen a number of people move from renewables etc across to um to solve problems in in carbon markets so really interested to try and uh to try and get some of your views on uh, on both of those and how they fit together as well maybe you could just give us a little bit of an introduction into into both financial machines and net zero market. Yeah, sure. So financial machines is a company helping enable the energy transition. Uh, I'm actually both companies I'm involved with uh, former colleagues of mine, uh, um, both of whom I've known for kind of over 20 years. I mean, my primary role is with financial machines i'm the president there uh, and we're helping enable the energy transition uh, we've built software to allow customers to uh, essentially select the right place to build energy storage and renewables uh, understand the value of those assets and optimize those assets uh, in order to maximize returns uh, so our customers are typically energy storage or energy storage in combination with renewables um, and the reason why software and data is extremely important in those markets is uh, energy storage is pretty uh, unique in that it can access uh, multiple markets to deliver revenue. So the decision on what to do and when is it extremely complex, uh, also being a function of the, if it's a battery, the state of charge your battery is in. So that's financial machines. So software focused on energy transition. Um, uh, I've been there for about a year. Uh, the second company, Net Zero Markets, is, um, as you said, it's providing market-based solutions. Uh, and in a nutshell, in the environmental space, focusing on carbon, and in a nutshell, we're trying to ensure that funds pass from buyers, who are typically corporates, to sellers, who are typically projects, in an efficient manner with the least friction cost or margin extracted by other parties in the middle. Um, you know, and those products we're developing and we've launched one should also facilitate the scaling of the market and not require all buyers to be project level experts, uh, because that's not conducive to allowing a market to, to scale rapidly. From my perspective, I mean, both of these sort of solutions are, are equally important. You know, there's that, that analogy of turning off the bathtub as you're trying to empty it. How do you think about um, the importance of each of those organizations, you know, and and and, and their purpose? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they're both important. Uh, uh, I mean, for uh, I think we're probably through the. I hope we're through the uh, climate change doubters. Uh, you know, this year alone, uh, and I've had the pleasure of traveling to Europe, but Europe is a very brown, dry and hot Europe. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm hoping, you know, that people aren't doubting that that climate change is real. So the way I think about both of them is um, I turn them into CO2 equivalents. So, you know, we emit about 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases, of which about 35 is carbon dioxide. And the other uh, other portion is other greenhouse gases. Um, if I think about that, 50 billion, about 70% is carbon related. So the development of the carbon markets generally uh, should help uh, uh, reduce and remove that portion. Uh, and then electricity production is around 30% globally. So that's focused on um, you know, the energy transition. So if I do it on CO2 equivalents, I, I could tell you that that 
carbon markets more generally would have a bigger impact. But of course, both are both are extremely important. And the and the piece missed there is the role of um, urbanization, electrification, and population growth, uh, which will likely make that that thirty percent number get higher in terms of uh, electricity production globally. I've also been struck sometimes with people who are deeply involved in the energy transition, focus very much on renewables, completely understand the need for decarbonization, but also have a lot of question marks over, over carbon markets and the role that they play. Have you seen that yourself? And how do you, how have you addressed that? Uh, well, the two things are inextricably linked. Uh, I, I mean, nothing, in terms of electricity production is zero emissions because people will quite rightly point out uh, I need to go find materials to build wind turbines and then I need to you know take care of the materials once the blades are, have come to the end of their useful life so nothing has zero but certainly if I was thinking about electricity the relative carbon footprint of a coal-fired power station versus a wind turbine it's um uh you know it's not it it, it the conversation isn't anywhere near the same level. So you find people, uh, I find skeptics going for, well, it isn't zero. Well, I agree it's not zero, but it's much better than burning coal or oil or natural gas. Um, so that that's kind of where I come across some of them. For the most part in my energy transition work, it's, um, uh, you know, I'm mainly dealing with people who, who kind of understand this and get this. I, I, I kind of more come across doubters on, on social media and, and other mediums. Um, and there's two ways I really think about that. The, the first way I think about that is uh, what is the concentration of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere? Because that is measurable uh, and it's it's undeniable. So, you know, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration in the US measures this globally from about 15,000 samples. So you can see year on year, the level of CO2 and methane in our atmosphere and how it's increasing. You can also see the effect it's having on temperature, um, which I think actually personally often masks, you know, if someone says one degree or two degrees to, to you, it's maybe like, oh, well, yeah, that's not a lot. That's not going to bother anyone, right? But hidden within that is the increase in extreme events that leads to that average increase, uh, which, you know, unfortunately people... Uh, people are experiencing around the globe today. So it's often on those social media channels that I come up against. Those typically the people on energy transition are committed. They're building the assets. We're, we're trying to help them make the right decisions and get more of those assets in the ground. And on the, on the carbon market side of things, it tends to be either intermediaries or, or projects or corporates who are all in the ecosystem. So they, they understand it. So it, it appears to be, more rock throwing skeptics from outside generally on on social media than the the people i professionally interact with look i think um why don't we start with with sort of that energy transition space and then we can jump across the carbon markets and get back to how they interplay with each other you know we're only at the beginning of this journey of the energy transition really some countries are far more advanced than others i think we've seen a renewed um focus and need and there's, there's more talk around energy security now, which is kind of a new, I think, um, a, a, a new paradigm almost that's supporting renewables in the general public as well, given everything that's happening in Europe and Ukraine, et cetera. 
where do where do you see us in in terms of that journey on the energy transition? How you know how far have we progressed? How much more progress have we got to make? I guess to level set the way again, I think about that is is I'm quite a numerical person, so it's looking at the numbers, right? And I think uh, uh, BP produced an annual statistical survey that that gives energy use and electricity generation by by fuel type, which I find really interesting to to kind of look at, so you can see the trends over time. Um, and if you looked at 2020 overall energy consumption, 80% of energy consumption comes from either oil, coal, or natural gas or fossil fuels, right? About roughly a third, a third, a third, about 31% oil, 27% coal, 25% gas. Um, electricity generation, that number isn't 80% from fossil fuels, it's 61%, with far less coming from oil, only 3%, 35% from coal, 23% from gas. So coal and gas roughly the same oil lower and the difference is heating and transport that are in the energy number but aren't in the electricity number so if you look at those numbers we're right at the start of the journey and i guess that's the i i, I don't i wouldn't say use the word bad news but it, it's a realization that people have to take on board we're at the start of that energy transition right now the good news however is we've made penetration particularly in electricity generation in renewables uh, material penetration across the market over the last 10 to 15 years. In addition, the, the, that penetration has enabled a, a material cost reduction in solar and wind onshore and offshore. So if you look like over the last decade, the cost of solar has come down by 90% and um, onshore and offshore wind has come down by about two thirds, about 67, 70%. So we're, we have the tools available to to make the transition. Uh, and obviously in conjunction with those renewables, we need a, an appropriate amount of energy storage. So I'd say in terms of the energy storage, the energy transition, we're right near the uh, near the start of the journey, but we have the tools to to enable us to, to make that journey uh, and we should try and make it as rapidly as possible. And how is Financial Machines helping your customers in that journey with the services you provide? Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe a little bit of background on, on financial machines, and then I'll give you an idea of the products. You know, the way I think about it is, a, is an asset, asset life cycle. So, um, you know, initially the company was engaged by uh, a private company looking to secure sites to develop energy storage assets. Uh, and this is three or four years ago when it, uh, the, the space wasn't quite as hot as it is now. Um, so a lot of work was done analyzing the market constructs and the prices in those markets. And for people that don't operate in the electricity markets, particularly the ones that are deregulated and in the US, they have, um, you know, individual prices for the location of interconnection. So in Texas, the market has around 800 different locations you can put an asset at or you can put an asset at a new location and that has a price point associated with it. So it's very um, location specific. So really we help customers in, in three ways. We help them explore. So explore sites for development uh, and construction of assets. We help them value. So what's the asset worth there under various different scenarios? Uh, and we help them optimize. So once their asset, although some people do it before the asset actually starts so they can understand how the market's operating, once the, once the asset is about to be in the ground or in the ground, how do I make those decisions on a daily and a real-time minute-by-minute basis to extract the maximum value I can out of the asset I've got in the ground? So 
we help them explore, we help them value, and we help them optimize. And maybe just to give people a bit of context, you know, at the beginning, you were telling us about your experience over the last you know, 20, 20 years or so in these markets and working for Enron, massive energy um, trading platform, you know, player in those markets. How has that changed for you personally? You know, think about things like automation, et cetera, the speed at which you're transacting. Can you compare what you're talking about now with maybe how things were done at the beginning of your career? Uh yeah, I mean, there's it It varies by market, but if I just focus on electricity and power, I'd say data has always been a massive part of it. Uh, it it's less, you know, I, I, I come from a background of companies that relied a lot on fundamental analysis, and that's trying to understand what the cost of every unit on the system is, uh, combined with how people might operate in the system. That's the people that own assets, the people that buy power, and the people, the third-party intermediaries that trade power. So, Power has always been an incredibly data intensive commodity, probably more so than, um, you know, if you were just a, an oil trader trading WTI or Brent, the fundamentals are important, but there's also geopolitical influences and other things that are more macro where power always feels very micro to the, to the system it's operating in. So I'd say it's always been data intensive. You, you are right. The, amount of data uh, required has increased over the last 20 years as the grid has become more complex and the products that you can trade have become more complex. Um, you know, and there's an emergence of uh, a lot of AI and machine learning, uh, um, which I often have to have people explain to me in, in terms of, well, what do you, there's very, there's different approaches in different fields of AI and there's different ways you can do machine learning. Um, and I'm always very interested to hear how people are using it in a uh, in a market that's kind of uh, constantly evolving uh, 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 with new rules and new regulations. So, you know, it's always been very data intensive, more data intensive now. And the, the use of mathematical techniques to uh, aid the synthesis of that data has probably also increased. But I, I think... Um, People should always be aware that that's only one component of the, well, it is the equation, but it's only one co component of a commercial decision-making process because statistical analysis itself and optimization isn't the only aspect you need to consider. Uh, I've seen it several times where commercial structures um, not adequately accounting for asset parameters or or not adequately accounting for, for kind of evolving market rules has left uh asset owners with material downside so it's good to have that mathematical optimization side but overlaid with real world trading experience and operations is is i think critical to to getting the best outcome for customers and given the speed of the way things are developing in the energy transition you know how do you how do you prioritize certain things at financial machines what are you working on what are you looking forward to, to developing over the next year or so yeah, I mean, we're, we're customer orientated, people who are currently customers and people who are potential customers. So, you know, we, we have a, a large network across the industry and we're continually talking to people, the people who are who are signed up with us. We're continually talking to them about what would be helpful for them. What what do they need to know that they don't know? Uh, how do they see the market evolving? What tools would be useful? So we're talking to them about about how we develop our products. And we're also talking to people who aren't our customers. So uh, trying to understand why they're not our customers and 
what would we need to do in order for them to become a customer? Is it a product feature? Is it a price thing? Is it a messaging thing? So, you know, we're very focused on, on what our customers need and that really drives uh, the development of, of our products. So we're focused on, you know, delivering customers the solutions they need. Um, we have our views, but I mean, I like across my career almost, you know, you have to listen to the customer. Uh, I've heard some pretty bad experiences of people that, you know, I think I know your business better than you do. So I'll tell you what you need. Typically, it isn't a very, uh, a very good approach. Um, you know, so we're trying to talk to as many people as possible, customers and potential customers to understand how we should be improving our products. So that's, you know, that, that's always at the core of what we do. And then, you know, two other things that are that are on the priority slate. One is uh, the geographic expansion I, I mentioned earlier. So we're evaluating different markets internationally. And we're also going to be going out and raising some funding to, to help us with that development, um, you know, uh, in terms of... Uh, in terms of our our software build out and infrastructure build out to facilitate that, because this is quite unique, we're trying to cover two two uh, different different um, roles that you play here. Why don't we jump across now to net zero markets? Um, just give us a brief intro to to the voluntary carbon markets and and what role net zero is playing um, in that space. Yeah, so uh, so again, go back to the numbers. Uh, I like the numbers, so I think the. 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent that that, that represents our estimated output. Uh, about 35-ish of those are, are carbon directly, CO2 directly. Um, the first thing for people to know is the majority of those aren't covered by any kind of mandatory trading scheme. So like the EU emissions trading scheme, that there are schemes out there. The, ma the majority of schemes or the majority of emissions are not covered by those schemes. Yep. So the main driver over recent years has been you know, uh, predominantly driven by the buy side, by corporates and investors, uh, both equity and debt investors, um, uh, exploding the demand for ESG compliant investments. And we're talking about the E part of this, the environmental part. Uh, so companies are committing in their thousands to, to science-based targets. Now, the problem they get when they come to the voluntary carbon market is it's confusing, it's opaque, and it's inaccessible. Yep. So there's multiple standards, there's multiple technologies, there's multiple geographies, you know, what, like it, it, thinking about a, a third party person trying to approach this as, as a market, it's very hard to understand. So that made the barrier to entry very, very high. Um, this limits the amount of funding. I think I mentioned earlier, we're trying to facilitate that between buyers and sellers uh, with the least friction cost in the middle. So this complexity stops funding re reaching projects, essentially, uh, which stops us from getting those projects built and financed and taking down the CO2 emissions. So, um, you know, what's net zero markets trying to do? We're trying to simplify the, those products in the market so people don't have to be an expert at a project level. And we're trying to, you know, the initial project we've we've launched, we can talk a little bit more about that, a global emission reduction contract, which we've launched on exchange, <clears throat> is supposed to, and, and is providing a single global reference price for that market. Um, yeah, because one of the things that, um, that we hear out there is, I've kind of made a commitment. So the steps that corporates typically go for is I make a commitment, I measure, I report, I reduce and then I do something about the things I can't reduce. 
And when they get to, when they're on that journey, they're thinking about our products trying to help the last part, which is you've measured, you've reported, you've reduced, and, and now what do I do about the rest? That they almost then enter this like wall of uh, confusing opaqueness. And where do I see what the price for carbon is? Well, what's this standard versus that standard? What's, the, you know, what's the, you know, and you'll hear, um, you know, all the, all the carbon market buzzwords, what's the additionality, what's the permanence, how should I be thinking about this? Uh, and and what, what that's uh, led to in the market, unfortunately, is uh, a lack of activity, but a lot of intermediaries who are uh, taking some of that spread away from buyers and sellers, either advising, producing, rating, sourcing, but charging a very large margin for sourcing the products, um, you know, so it has a lot of the characteristics of a really immature market right now, which I think is is almost, you know, holding back the pent up uh, demand that's out there from the corporate space. And so if I understand it correctly, GER, the global emission reduction contract that you've launched on a couple of exchanges, that's almost it's a basket of different um underlying uh contracts essentially it's got a it's got a, a number of different projects which are embedded in there so it's almost like an etf in a way i would i would think yeah so exactly the way i think about it is it's like the dow jones index that's the way i think about it were but with a with a couple of twists so you know it's made the gr itself is made up of a set of subcontracts there's a base carbon contract which in covers renewable and energy efficiency, a prime carbon contract, which covers projects with additional sustainable development goals, forestry, which includes afforestation and deforestation because they're not liquid enough to be broken out right now. And then there's a carbon capture contract. So it represents the broad categories of offsets and removals, we'll come back to removals, that are trading in the market today. Um, and the mix of the contract is a function of the retirements of corporates and the contract gets reweighted every year. So it provides the, not only does it provide a selection of projects, but it's the average of what everyone who's participating in the market is doing. Uh, the other little twist in there is I mentioned carbon removals. So we acknowledge that by the time we get to 2050, we need to be at hundred percent removals. So we need to be then removing everything, not just trying to offset our, our own emissions. So um, what happens with our contract is every year it reweights and there's a pre-programmed path to take carbon removals from a very low level today to 100% in 2050. The residual mix of the contract is based off the retirements of corporates we, we talked about. So, and that mix will change year on year. So as people look at, let's just take, renewable energy. So we're back to where we started a while ago on what's the relationship re between renewables. Um, you know, uh, one of the things with renewables is if I offer enough tax incentive to a renewable, I, I don't need it, it. It it has no, you would do that project anyway. So this is the additionality debate, right? I would do that project regardless of whether it had a carbon price associated it, with it or not. So as some of the registries acknowledge that and remove it, the weighting of that in our contract will go down over time. And equally, if new technologies emerge, the weightings will, you know, change. So we, we've also tried to make it as, uh, you know, we're 
a bunch of people who operated in the markets and, and, and trading. So we try and have a mathematical formula for doing this with a minimal amount of oversight. There is a supervisory committee that would consider technologies in, technologies out, creation of new subcontracts um, and the like, uh, just because it needs to be future-proof. But for the most part, we're trying to let the market drive the product rather than a, a set of industry experts drive the product. Yeah, I understand. So just to break it down a little bit more, you've got this one single priced contract, the GER. Within that, there's a number of other contracts like components broken in. So major components of voluntary carbon markets like reforestation, afforestation, mm -hmm. some small amounts of carbon removal, et cetera. And what you do is you look at data outside of that contract of what corporate buyers are actually buying. So yeah, so so there's the the, the yeah for the uninitiated, there's there's registries out there where people register the projects, right? So we look at right now Vera and Gold Standard that represent the majority of retirements. There are other registries which we're investigating, but they represent a much smaller portion of the retirements that are being made by actual corporate offsetters today. So we look at those registries. And we look at the mix of the projects that match our subcontracts that are being retired and we reweight our contract. So let's say, for instance, you are a, cor a corporate and you want to buy a GER, then a seller can deliver you a GER by delivering the prerequisite mix of underlying projects that max match the percentages we've defined as the contract percentages. So they deliver a certain portion of the base carbon contract of forestry and of the prime contract and of carbon removals. And that would constitute a GER. Uh, and, and we also what, do that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think what's really interesting there is you particularly just to point out, you, you're looking at what's being retired in the market, right? So you've got to um, supply the amount of, um, you know, carbon removal avoidance certificates, uh, credits that are coming on online. But importantly, you're looking at what consumers, customers, businesses are actually demanding, what they want to see, what they want to use to, to actually hit their net zero um, targets, which yeah, I think what, is really what, important. Yeah, what they're actually using. And that's uh, it's got a really interesting uh, um, angle to it. So the way I think about this, there are some very large, I mean, obviously this has been going on for the last few years, right? So the companies have been first movers. A lot of the technology companies have been first movers in this space, right? Both procurement of renewable electricity and thinking about their carbon footprint in terms of what they develop themselves, what they use and what's in their supply chain, right? Or scope one, two, and three to the to the carbon nerds listening to this, right? That they've, they've been, you know, um, ahead of the market there. Yeah, so some companies have a very good profitability to emissions ratio, i.e. they're extremely profitable and their emissions are low. That's allowed the technology companies to, you know, pioneer uh, the space and take action early, which is obviously fantastic. It also allows them to, to fund, um, you know, uh, nascent and new technologies, things like direct air capture that are extremely expensive today, but you know, the, it, funny back to the analogy with renewables, uh, you know, where I'm telling you solar's down 90%, we need to see that kind of cost drop in things like direct air capture, right? So, um, you know, they've been able to do those things, but you know, one of the things that, that we need to be cognizant of is they have the money to do that. They can hire a large team of people to understand the voluntary carbon market. They can 
produce a very detailed strategy to procure certain projects, certain technologies, certain geographies over time. That is not how it's going to play out for the treasury of medium-sized corporate uh, XYZ uh, who has been given this in addition to their day job to ensure that they're compliant at the, and that they, after they've made the commitments to, after they made the commitment, after they measured, they've reported, they've reduced, now they need to offset, they're going to try and do that as well. It, it, so it's very important that there's products available out there that provide, you know, um, almost, for want of a better phrase, safety in numbers. So what are you doing? I'm doing, on average, what everyone else is doing, plus some removals. And that's really what, what the GER provides. Uh, and we've also, as you said, listed it on exchange. It's on Air Carbon Exchange and it's on the Nodal Exchange and will be probably next year now on the on the EEX, the European Exchange. So we'll cover then North America, Asia and Europe uh, in terms of the venues we're listed on. Um, you know, so people can go and see that. Uh, we've also listed it through a retail broker as well. So corporates can buy it directly. So through Plan Net Zero. So corporates can buy it directly. Individuals can buy it directly. I bought some to test it out. So yeah, know that it, it's everything's working. The pipes are pipes are all working. So that's one of the exciting things about this product because one of the pieces of feedback we've heard from deck directly customers, and we're also talking to a lot of people that have access to lots of customers as well, is you know people are kind of almost afraid to engage in the market for fear of. Uh, choosing a project in their portfolio that has a questionable additionality or questionable permanence or it's just generally questionable and therefore there's a headline in the wall street journal or the financial times or whatever your uh read of choices saying how they're they're greenwashing and that's you know extremely bad for the the their reputation so that in itself i think is holding a lot of people back from from taking action. Oh, absolutely. I speak to customers in the market all the time who would much like as much as they're purpose-driven, values-driven, have pressure from stakeholders, shareholders, their employees, customers, they would rather not buy a carbon offset than risk buying a, a dodgy one. And I think what, you know, innovations like the GER are really important to get people more comfortable with, um, with what credits can provide them whilst reducing risk that they do end up on the front page of you know the wall street journal or financial times or something for having supported a project that didn't do what it said it would do on the tin yeah and, and, and we should be honest right but there's some projects out there and, and i've seen some recent things uh, some of them quite amusing around uh, uh around projects that are on certain registries uh the ones i saw were not on the registries that are part of our product but that I'm, I'm equally sure we could go and find out of the thousands of projects, we could go and find one that that was questionable, right? So, you know, do we need to improve this, the, um, you know, the, do we need to go with a zero tolerance policy around projects that get on registries? Absolutely. I, I agree with that. But should that lead to, should some projects that are questionable amongst a lot of other projects lead to complete stasis in the market and inaction? Well, no, because that's really bad, you know, bad for, for the environment effectively. So, you know, with the development of the market is to channel money from the people who want to buy to the people who want to sell, which ultimately leads in the development of more projects, which leads to, you know, reduction and removal of carbon from 
the atmosphere, which is what we're what we're trying to you know what we're trying to achieve here. And anything that doesn't do that is 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 not what we're trying to do. And there may be people that argue that you know I come from a markets background, so I want to see the market develop an efficient market develop to allow to do that. So as an example, we saw some criticism, which was this is absolutely what we don't want. We don't want just an index. Like I want to be able to pick a project and, you know, blah, blah, blah. it's like, perfect. That's fine. If you have the luxury of, and the knowledge to be able to pick a project and devise a project specific offset strategy, you can go and do it. This is the Dow Jones index. If you want to be a stock picker and you want to pick the individual stocks, you can do that. Our product does not restrict you from, from doing that. The product Net Zero Markets has developed allows you to buy the index. So it, it, we're, not, we're not precluding people from, you know, or, or excluding people from going and buying individual projects. We're just giving a, another route to market and one that we think's important. Uh, and equally, if someone just wants to buy, um, you know, the forestry subcontract, you know what the requirements are for the forestry subcontract and what you can present from the registries, you can just buy the forestry contract if you want to do just do afforestation and deforestation. Right now they're combined, but um, you know you can do that. So yeah, we do see some some criticisms, but uh, and my own personal point of view is that the best way to have that transition of funding from buyers to sellers is to have you know uh, as many appropriate instruments in the market that remove the the blockers to the kind of opaque and inaccessible part of the market. And hopefully it also removes some of the, you know, intermediation with extremely large fees associated with it, which effectively is taking money out of the pockets of projects and putting it into other people's pockets. That's not what we want to do, right? Our, you know, our contract is listed on exchange. We get a share of those exchange fees, which are very small, um, you know, in comparison to some of the, you know, the fees out there that people are are charging to, um, you know, to to source these projects. And yeah, while, while that market's immature, the, there's a role for potentially incremental advice. There's maybe a role for grading. Uh, I mean, the other thing I, I worry about in the market is if we go for any more than a handful of standard set of registries and we have everyone trying to create a new standard and new registry and a new, like it just becomes that doesn't add to uh, or that doesn't take away from the complexity it adds to it so i think we need to be really careful when we're developing a market that the that we can concentrate liquidity because if it's very fragmented that's not the way a market market develops yeah and i think two questions on that one is i, I kind of feel there's this it's not quite a level playing field with carbon markets um you know carbon markets by and of themselves are there to price carbon in a way but there's so much more expected of them you know it's all of the sdgs un's sdgs or 17 of them how those are priced into the contract and the requirements of those and how each corporate might value those internally to hit their own esg policies which means that there's a lot of pressure on project developers to not just remove carbon, but to provide, um, you know, inclusion from indigenous communities, you know, look at soil health, water quality, et cetera. And, the, and that there's a lot, a huge role there for carbon markets to fill if it can be done properly. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so I mean, I, I, yeah, the problem with that, and we haven't even talked about vintages, 
right? So if I consider there's lots of different technologies for individual projects, geographies, um, SDGs associated with those projects and vintages, i.e. what year is the project operating? So I'm just taking an individual project price point and I'm like, I'm not creating a, I'm not creating a, an instrument that has enough liquidity to develop a market. If the market remains fragmented, i.e. individual project level pricing times vintages times SGDs, I've got like tens of thousands of price points and it's just, it, it's not going to transact as a market. Now there has to be a sacrifice. So if you want to buy a GER, you may be delivered a set of pro you'll be delivered a set of projects that fulfill the contract criteria. You will not be able to select those projects if you're a buyer. The seller will go, here's the contract criteria criteria. I'm delivering these projects. You've got a GR. Yeah. And what we've committed to do is publish um projects that are retired in the name of the GER as a whole, but people will not get that in, you know, so you have to for the liquidity concentration and focus, you lose the ability to pick individual projects. But that's back to my Dow Jones. If you just want to get expert, if you just want to hedge the stock market, you go and buy the Dow Jones. You don't go and buy each of the individual stocks or go, well, actually, I want to, I want to buy a lot more Apple than anyone else because I, I feel that that's going up, more likely to go up than the rest of the market. So you're trying to risk manage yourself against the, the overall exposure. So, you know, there are there are sacrifices to be made, but you know, particularly as the market matures and develops, we need the people that are on the kind of on the sidelines who want to do something, who are being stopped from doing something by the problems that exist in the market. We want to, you know, introduce them into the market. And I know um the the other, I guess, hot topic out there is the role of blockchain. So for me, blockchain is uh, gives a uh, gives a custody record. So blockchain is really important in giving you know an efficient way of having an immutable record of custody and ownership. I can put whatever I want in into a into a crypto or blockchain instrument. I, I can put some a project with a very high quality removals project. Or I can put something that has no additionality very permanent, extreme, not, not a lot of permanence, uh, questionable quality, I can put that in a crypto asset as well. That Those two things are not a function of, you know, that what I'm putting into it is not a problem with the instrument I'm, I'm using. It's a problem with what I'm putting into it. So I think, um, you know, uh, maybe uh, blockchain has, has got a bit of a, and crypto has got a bit of a bad, a bad name out there, but I think that bad name is associated with low quality projects being packaged that way and delivered to buyers that's not the same that that's not a problem with blockchain technology which provides a great chain of custody and and record you know which is important uh, you know because you want to know you want to know that the project you bought was retired and you can see that it's been retired and you can go back to a register and blockchain's really useful at doing that um so you know i think that that's been quite a a hot topic maybe over the last six to 12 months. So I think it's, you know, it's definitely that technology definitely has a role to play and has some important benefits. And it's got that technology itself isn't choosing the projects you put into the instrument, right? The the people devising those products are, are choosing what goes into it. So 
I think that's a really good point. You know, it, it is a technology, it has applications, but we still need a, 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 you know, a very careful approach to what goes into, it, you know, how that technology is used. We're going to have to start wrapping up now. Um, when we uh, we do this, we do our, our what's up section. So this is three quick questions, three rapid responses from, from your side. Um, so if you're ready, I'll, I'll just jump into the first one. And considering you you cover both sides of you know carbon and energy transition, quite interested to get your thoughts on this. What is climate tech to you? Hmm. So climate tech to me is any technology that enables uh, decarbonization, and that covers a, a massive swath of uh, of things. Clearly, financial machines is uh, is firmly in that bucket because we're aiding people in deploying renewables generation, but it could equally mean carbon accounting or people helping with the O&M or battery management side of things. So it's pretty broad. So anything that, that, that any technology that enables decarbonization. What is your number one motivation? That's a tough one. Make it I personal. Have of, I, Make it I, personal. Have lots of, I have lots of motivations. Yeah. The, the reason why, the reason why I've come back to this space is because I have expertise to deploy to help with decarbonization. Right. So I've essentially taken my skill set and knowledge and, and tried to deploy it in spaces in decarbonization that can help because I, I think the uh, I'm, I'm reading a book called California Burning right now. Uh, I think there's a quote in there. I can't say it because it has a swear word in it, but uh, maybe I can. But, uh, you know, we're OK. Our kids are OK, but our grandkids are probably not OK unless we do something right. And that that makes climate a. Uh, a really hard problem. No one really thinks in fifty to a hundred year chunks. So you know, I, I'm you know, I'm you know, my number one priority is deploying my skills to enable decarbonization. Uh, last question is: What would you recommend to someone looking to get involved in climate? And this can be anything, really. I mean, just looking back at your career, what what would you recommend? Uh, maybe this is the way I, almost I'm built. I would say start by by doing your own research uh, about the space. And there's plenty of materials out there. Start with the uh, IPCC reports to figure out what actually is climate change and what's going on. And then you can pick up anything across TechCrunch if you want to get into climate tech to figure out what companies are out there. And as I said, I, my definition to question one, the anything that enables decarbonization, the, you can come at it from so many different angles. I think you've got to decide where you can best deploy your skills and what things you enjoy doing. Cause I think it's, you know, important for people to get enjoyment out of what they're doing. Otherwise, it, you know, it, it's not a very uh, happy world. If you're, if you're grinding against the, the uh, grinding is to stone every day, you've got to be enjoying what you're doing. So research and enjoy. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Peter. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about financial machines and net zero markets? Yeah, so uh, website's a good place to go, finmachines.com for financial machines. You can contact us there at uh, info at, at finmachines.com or netzeromarkets.co, that's CO. And again, you can contact us uh, through the website at uh, info at netzeromarkets.co. Um, and on both websites, there's a description of what the businesses are doing and, and how we help customers. So um, spend a little bit of time on there and we'd be uh, you know more than happy to to talk to people who want to engage. Great. Well, look, I'll put those on um, social media posts, et cetera, when we, we put this out. 
Peter, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great covering both sides of these, these markets. Great. I look forward to uh, look forward to talking more.